This is IFS Talks, an audio series to deepen connection with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers, authors, practitioners, and users. Today we're interviewing and talking to Martha Sweezy. Martha Sweezy is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, part-time program consultant and supervisor at Cambridge Health Alliance, and former assistant director and director of training for the Dialectical Behavioral Therapy Program at Cambridge Health Alliance. She has a therapy and consultation practice in Northampton, Mass., and has a particular interest in how shame and guilt affect human behavior. Martha has also published several books on IFS therapy. Martha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for being with us on IFS Talks. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Martha, thank you for having us. You have been publishing several books on IFS therapy and also authors, articles and chapters like The Teenager's Confessions, yeah. Emotional Cannibalism, Getting Unstuck, and also with Frank Anderson, what IFS offers to the treatment of trauma. So you have this really huge publishing and writing work. Um, how is it for you to hear this bio? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I got to work on writing. I, I got introduced to IFS um, by a colleague, and I think it was 2005. And I took my first level one in 2006. And I'm a writer anyway. Um, I was a writer before I became a psychotherapist. And so I... I was already writing in the field and also fiction and playwriting. And um, so that's kind of how I process the world is sitting down and writing. Um, and I had been working in community mental health for 20 some years. Um, and I was um, always looking for I always had questions I you know I went through a lot of different trainings and I always had a lot of questions about how to fit what I was seeing with clients into what I the theories that I was learning and nothing ever uh it was like you know the leg of the elephant the ear of the elephant the trunk of the elephant nothing was putting the whole thing together for me enough so I was very blown away when I heard Dick speak and saw a video of what he was doing. And my way of continuing to process as I began to practice IFS with clients and understand what was happening was to sit down and start writing. So, so I, I wrote, wrote, you know, a couple of articles that actually then to my, somewhat to my surprise got published because IFS was pretty out there in, uh, uh, you, Marta, you are responsible for titles like Internal Family Systems and New Dimensions. Which I co-edited with Alan Ziskin. In yeah. 2013, Intimacy from the Inside Out with Tony Irvine Blank and yeah. Donna Kerkman. Yeah. 2015, Innovations and Deliberations in Internal Family Systems. In Which I co-edited with Alan Ziskin. Internal Family Systems Skills Training Manual. With Frank and Dick. With yeah. Frank Anderson and Rich. And yes, 2017. Yeah. And more recently, the Internal Family Systems Therapy Second Edition with, with Dick. Dick Schwartz, yeah. 2019. Yeah. So it looks like you really have a special interest and in skills in writing and publishing and in IFS in particular. Yeah. Once we have done it with Dick Schwartz, Tony Weinblank, Frank Anderson, Pam Krause, Lawrence Rosenberg. <laughs> this is <laughs> huge. You really enjoy to see <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things that happened to me, I, got, I became very focused on IFS because it was answering a lot of questions for me. Um, I was, I, it was like putting together all, everything I had learned from clients into, into a theory that really worked for me. And so, so I, I wanted, you know, once I got through level three, I thought, well, there is no level four and there is no level five. So I think I'll start yeah, level four and five. collecting all these people. It was my own personal level, you know, four, five, and six. I, I started collecting the lead trainers and saying, write a chapter for me on, you know, on what you do. You really have to enjoy this writing and publishing work because it can it's be hard, not, hard it's work. It's not hard work for me, actually. 
Oh, you enjoy it, it really. I enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It comes naturally. I mean, it's work. I, you know, you have to. I have to put time and effort into it, but I really enjoy it. So, I'm not. I won't complain. But yeah, thank you for all the contributions. Oh, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure, and I've learned a huge amount from the people who I've had the privilege to work with, co-author with. Martha, would you be willing to talk a little bit about your journey into the world of psychotherapy? You said you were a writer first and then a psychotherapist later. I was a, a fiction writer, actually, and I um, oh. was had studied playwriting with Eric Walcott, and uh, I then thought I might, you know, I wrote some film scripts, and then I thought about going out to Hollywood, and then I thought... Either I do that and, you know, go all in or I, you know, earn an honest living some other way because, uh, um, you know, I, I can't live on nothing. So, um, and I don't have the personality to go to hustle, you know, in the film world. Um, and it's, it's just not, there are wonderful things about it, but it's not, it's not something I'm very capable of. So. I decided to do what a lot of English majors do, which is to become a psychotherapist. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. a narrative, an interest in narrative that crosses over, and a lot of folks uh, make that switch. So I, so I went into the therapy business, um, and I worked in community mental health for many years, and you know, studied a lot of different approaches to therapy and. You were also a DBT, a dialectical behavior therapy, interested in Yeah. It was one of your trainings or interests. Yes, and I've written some on that too. Um, yeah, so I, I went through a lot. You know, when you're working with people who are really traumatized, you have to stay on your toes and you're constantly, I mean, I felt I had to constantly try new things because nothing ever worked enough yeah right. it's never never enough our training is never ending exactly right and that's what i love about the field too is that, it, that it's never ending i mean there's always more to learn and and uh and we never know enough so. and when did you get across into the ifs trainings um in t it was in 2005 that um nancy soul who was a colleague of mine at cambridge health alliance uh uh, brought IFS to Cambridge Hospital just when she first got introduced to it. She came in and started talking about it and did a little demonstration um, as she kind of jokes before she knew anything. And uh, and she, uh, I went with another colleague. I heard because of what she was doing at the hospital, I heard that Dick was in town speaking in Cambridge and I someone said, you want to go see him? And so I went over to this church on the Cambridge Common where he was presenting and and he showed a video that just, you know, blew my mind. Um, and I thought, I have no clue what he just did, but whatever it was, I want to do that. That's that's what I need to figure out. Um, that's kind do. of a feeling? Or no, it was astonishing, the results he was getting. I mean, okay. I, you know, Dick can look very minimalistic in these videos. You, it's not like he says a lot. Mm -hmm. And I had no, I had no, no orientation to the therapy, so the whole thing was completely new to Absolutely, me. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really mm -hmm. didn't know what he was doing. I was like, whatever he just did, mm -hmm. that was like a magician. That was the most amazing thing I've seen in a long time. So I want to do that. It was a demo that he shared. No, he was actually working. It was one of the earlier videos that well, he was working in an eating disorder um, uh, facility. And it was a, it wasn't a demo. It was, he was a consultant on a case with a young woman who had, it was her birthday and she had, had long said that she was going to kill herself on yeah. her birthday. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think he can show that unless he's with that. He doesn't like, I don't think it's for sale or anything, mm -hmm. but um, it, it's an amazing piece of work. It impacted you a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, oh yeah, it had a huge impact on me, and um, so I immediately signed up for a level one training and and kept going from there, kind of fanat fanatically. <laughs> Your curiosity <laughs> led you in the right direction, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And did you uh, get some IFS personal work 
back then? Yeah, I have off and on over the years had done some personal work, but I also, the training itself is experiential. It is. Of course. Mm -hmm. So when you're, uh, my husband, so the first time I signed up for level one, he said, this is kind of expensive. And then when I got done, he said, well, when's the next one? <laughs> you come home with all that self-energy. Exactly. <laughs> Feels good. But your husband didn't took some training. Uh, I did actually send him to Kripalu for uh, a few days with Dick because I, I said, you just have to experience this firsthand if you want to know what I'm... And he took the training? So, no, he's just, it was just a weekend training. It wasn't a level one or anything. But yeah, he, he went. Yes. And he was very impressed. So you can use parts language with him? He, yep, he gets it. <laughs> Lucky you. I cannot do that at my home. <laughs> part of me wishes you wouldn't say part of me anymore <laughs> that's what i get how was it martha to to begin to use the model in your clinical work i uh, it was a revelation um actually um and um and i i immediately uh, started to understand a lot of things that um that had long puzzled me um and you know what is the repetition compulsion what is how can we there's a whole quality of dis with many psychotherapies that are more abstracted um there's a quality of which is most uh, unless people unless it's like gestalt or something where they're really working with parts already mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. Most psychotherapies are very abstracted in their language and their oh yeah mm -hmm. and their view of feelings and thoughts and whatnot. Um, yeah, and so a lot of it is you're working with sort of disowned absolutely material, and it doesn't work very well unless you can find whoever is running driving the car. You know, mm -hmm. if you're not talking to the person who's driving the car, you're not talking to the right person. Yeah. You know, I can, I can, I can get somebody to, you know, someone might come in and say, I'll never drink again. And they go out the door and head straight to the bar. You know, I was talking to the wrong part. <laughs> totally agree. I couldn't agree more with you. I also found that in my clinical practice. Yeah. I mean, so just everything fell into place in an amazing way, which was great because I had learned so much from other, uh, from my own experience with clients and from other approaches to therapy but but it was like putting the linchpin in the middle and having it all make sense mm -hmm. when i understood psychic multiplicity as the, the driving factor and it was easy for your clients to comprehend too because it was they love they love people love it i mean you know unless you run into a part that says there are no other parts and then It takes more skill, you know, it took me a few years to figure out how to handle, you know, very protective parts. It's just me. <laughs> It's just me. It's I don't mean, me. what are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, and that was the revelation there actually was talking to Dick and, and, and um, about, uh, you know, some firefighters. And he said, you just say you're the boss. Oh. You are the boss. And I was like, oh, oh, great. Okay. You're the boss. <laughs> and it made all the difference. Yeah. You just, you really, it takes, for me, it took a long time to make the switch from a more controlling position as a therapist to a real surrender uh, and trust of the client's systems and their kind of unlearning process. <laughs> Yeah, and their learning process and the protectors are good, you know. They're not always behaving well, but they're, they mean well. And to really get that, it, it took me a while. So you mean two steps. One is unlearning process. Yeah. And, and the other step and the challenge is to bring uh, parts language and the multiplicity of the mind in, into the office yeah. with clients can be a challenge in many ways with some yeah with some folks. With, some. with many it's like a huge relief really fast oh yes and i was that's one of the reasons i you know ended up noticing the the importance of this treatment in in, in relation to shame 
is because it's very shame regulating right away to say this is just a part of you. It's not all of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the one of the features of shame is that it's a global judgment about yourself. So you're immediately challenging that global judgment when you say uh, you have parts. So you'll find those clients, those that resist and those that jump immediately into parts language. Yeah. I mean, there were some, you know, there are people who have been very traumatized who have extremely wary protective systems. And, and if you don't, like I was a beginner. So those people, and I had plenty of them in my caseload, would have parts who were who were much more cautious about trusting me. And they were right, because I didn't know what I was doing the way I do mm-hmm. now. You know, mm-hmm. I, um, so it was about me and my level of expertise and understanding and whether I was going to step on some landmine, uh-huh. uh, you know, without realizing it. And now I'm, uh, I'm much more trustworthy, I think, for my clients' traumatized systems. And they respond, they respond accordingly. You know? There's that softening of saying, you're the boss, right? That softening of that system where they just yeah, exactly. can yeah. own that and, and take their own direction. Right. Yeah. So, so for how long, Martha, are you practicing IFS? Since 2006, I, uh, I'd say. So um, what is that? Almost 14 years. I'm practicing it maybe for three years yeah. only, yeah. and I'm still learning. Um, and it can take more and more, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I learn uh, every day from clients. I'm always that's one of the things I love about this too is I love going to work. You know, I don't work that hard. I don't consider it work. Mm. Um, I love uh, going in and sitting with people and being right there, and and getting having the privilege of of getting to know their internal systems and their parts. And so you still enjoy doing therapy every day? Yeah, well, I don't do it every day. I write some days, but yeah, when I, when I yeah. do, I totally enjoy it. Yeah. And I enjoy writing too, because, um, you know, I can. So every day you go to therapy, you enjoy it. I totally enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. It really is an honor when, when people let you uh, witness their, their internal world. Yeah, and when you, well, one of the things I've come to appreciate is the, is the courage it takes to just come into therapy. Yeah. Right. As a client. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have these kind of wild internal worlds that are very private. And to allow somebody else into all that, which is full of Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, secret stuff, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It is. Did you combine yet IFS with other modalities? Would, would there is some any other modality that you still like DBT? You were somehow attached. You know, DBT is a combination of CBT and Zen Buddhism, basically not as a spiritual mm-hmm. practice, but as a discipline of acceptance. Um, mm-hmm. And I learned a huge amount from that. And I think that the concept of wise mind is the same as the concept of self in yeah, IFS. Makes sense. It's basically headed toward the same, the accessing the same resource. Um, I happen to think that IFS is more experience near for folks and actually um, kind of gets people I- into their systems in a, for me, a more useful way. But but you know, skills—the kinds of skills that people learn in DBT—are enormously helpful. They just often would, I think, be more helpful for people after they've done some some work with their protectors rather than before. Um, so um, I I would say I use I, my training before that was uh, psychodynamic, and I also trained in EMDR and stuff. I, I I'm sure I use things. Uh, particularly when I need to be creative uh, because things aren't going according to plan. I, I kind of will jump in with whatever comes up, but I, it's, it's integrating and hypnosis. It's integrating, you know, uh, snippets from here and there into IFS. IFS is my, is my blueprint that I'm using. And um, so I would say that's my, my roadmap and I stick to it. And then I can use anything I've learned along the way. 
with it. Wonderful. Yes. And they fit and they integrate well. Yes. yes. What brought you into um, working or, or having an interest with working with shame and guilt? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I actually started, when I started in the field in the 80s, I was introduced by a professor um, who was a very wonderful teacher, Bob Shilkrit, um, to a theory called control mastery theory, which was about pathogenic guilt. It was very popular in San Francisco at the time. And I and they were in a big debate with a woman named June Tangney, who's an emotion researcher who was very um, interested in shame. And so there was a big mm-hmm. debate going on between them. And I read through all that literature. And, I, and then I read uh, James Gilligan's book. Uh, he's married to Carol Gilligan, and he's a psychiatrist mm-hmm. who, who ran a mental health uh, criminal facility in Massachusetts for many years. And he wrote a book called Violence, um, which is one of the best books ever written on shame. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so I was fascinated by the topic right from the beginning of my training and, and entrance into the field. But, but, I, but I learned all this other stuff that, you know, kind of along the way, uh, I wasn't putting it all together. So I sort of came back again later on. Uh, when I got introduced to IFS and I was sitting in a level three training actually with Dick um, and I was sort of thinking now why does this work so well why on earth does this treatment work so well and then you know I had one of those I suppose it was a part somewhere said okay dummy let me tell you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's because of shame. <laughs> say more, say more. <laughs> well, my parts, you know, talk to me. And, yeah. uh, and, you know, it was because, because compassion is the opposite of shame, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so the two are mutually exclusive. And we have clients who come in, you know, I mean, that's what you see. When you get to an exile, you get to a part who says, I feel worthless, I feel unlovable, I feel bad, I feel... And that's the burden they're carrying. But it's a burden of feeling um, this defective and, or, or, or evil in some way. And um, that burden is basically uh, a result of having been traumatically shamed, an attachment uh-huh. rupture that was traumatically shaming. And, you know, the literature, it's like all over the literature, we can read this. It's not hard to know this is a huge topic in uh-huh. the field. It's been of uh-huh. great interest since Helen Block Lewis, uh, Judith Herman's mother, was writing about it as an analyst uh-huh. um, in uh-huh. the 50s, um, I think, or maybe 40s. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so it's, not, it's not new. People have been working their way around this topic, and I've read a lot of the literature, but Psychic multiplicity, specifically plugging it into the inner dynamic of a mind that's trying to cope with trauma, is a is a like a third dimension that I had never um, kind of mm-hmm. at least maybe other people were tuning into it, but I wasn't, um, despite my interest in the whole thing. And now I did later on read John Bradshaw. I don't know if you remember him. He used to have a show on on PBS or Channel Two, um, and he, and he wrote the the shame that binds you. I oh, think right. It's called. Yeah. And he was very famous. He did a a TV show, and he talked about the inner child. Yeah. And he talked a lot about shame and shame and addictions and. Um, and uh, and he was he he was right on with a lot of stuff. It, there were things he made the same mistake that most people in the field have made or many have, which is to think that you have to fight with protectors. Right. You know, so, so in that way he had it to my mind, a major glitch in terms of, of treatment being effective, but he was, he got the, he got what was going on inside and he got a lot about what was going on with shame. Um, so it was very interesting to read that after uh, getting having this light bulb go on for me about IFS and and shame, 
And of course, shame and guilt are two, you know, they get conflated in a lot of research and a lot of literature. Not all. There's been what, what, do you, what do you mean by conflicted in what way? I mean, people think of them as the same thing. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and they're written about as interchangeable, shame and guilt, shame and guilt. And they're actually totally different. They're different parts. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and people, some people understand that and it's been written yeah. about and whatnot, but that shame is, um, is a global judgment about me and guilt is a uh, judgment about behavior, a behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and guilt mm-hmm. uh, promotes a kind of pro-social uh, desire to repair mm-hmm. Uh, unless it's unless it's you know maladaptive, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. pure guilt, guilt that's that's um, urging you to to go and fix it with somebody. That's a good thing, right? We we want to feel guilty if we transgress. We don't want to feel ashamed. Ashamed, feeling ashamed causes people to hide. That's the derivation, I think, of the word actually. And anyway, shame has been used also as a as a socializer as a glue for socializing or not i mean you, somehow you are saying we need to feel guilt but do we don't need to feel any shame yeah i mean i i'm writing a book on this topic actually too um shame is um you know there's a big argument in the field about whether shame is useful or not and some people say yes it's good to feel shameful exactly and other people say mm-hmm. no and you know my view is that it doesn't do people much good to feel shameful. Um, you know, it's like, what is it in King Lear? Uh, I can't remember. I think it's, maybe it's Cordelia who says it's like the salt, salt in the bread. You just need a little bit, you know, mm. uh, in, in one of her lines. You just need yes. a little, you need to be aware of the possibility that you could be stepping outside the group norms and that you should be, mm-hmm you know, vigilant about when you want to do that and when you don't um, because mm-hmm. you will pay a price for it. But mm-hmm. you don't need to feel shameful. Feeling shameful is um, is really very pathogenic, actually, in terms of human behavior mm-hmm. and is uh, correlates with a lot of really very dysfunctional behavior, um, which we could kind of group into broad categories of avoidance and aggression, right? Um, so a lot of symptomatic behavior that we see is connected to when we talk to people, uh, to their, uh, feeling there's something wrong with me and either I have to, you know, make sure that I project that and then I get enraged or I hide it. Would it be possible to say, Marta, that, uh, guilt somehow includes us and shame can excludes us from, from the group? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. The shamed, feeling shameful, actually, people will exclude themselves from the group, but they are also, if they've been shamed by a per individual or group, they are being excluded from the group. They're being kicked out or exiled, you know. And 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 IFS centers around the whole this whole concept of exile. You know, when we exile parts of ourselves, when we get exiled. So if you look at in terms of systems. Systems have exiles. Exile is basically a state of being uh, shameful and having been shamed. So you are in exile yeah. from that group, from that system. I worked with someone recently who um, their shame, one of their shame parts was serving the purpose of protecting uh, a, a perpetrator. Um, mm-hmm. So keeping them quiet, keeping them right. Yeah. Right. And shame can either be, it can also be a protector. That's right. Yeah. So because, because protectors shame, right? They do some right. shaming. That's right. So there's shaming and they're shameful. Shameful is the exile's state of being. It's a chronic condition. And shaming is something that goes on internally on a pretty continual basis with most people who have been traumatized because protective parts want Uh, the system to be, it's a constraining, inhibiting uh, activity that managers engage in pretty chronically. And in response, we get these disinhibited behaviors of firefighters because it's intolerable to be, you know, you need some distraction, you need a break. Constantly right. shamed. Yeah. yeah. So in that way, this is just kind of central, uh, this feature, this dynamic of shaming and shameful is central to the 
to the very typical kind of uh, um, loop that we see inside of people where they go from inhibition to disinhibition. Yeah, so so many psychopathology feeds on that, right. feeds on shame. Right, and we look at, you know, think about this way, we also look at firefighters, we look at these, these disinhibited parts mm -hmm. um, as the problem often. Many mental health treatment systems are set up around the emergency That's right. of these parts but they're driven by the shaming of the managers, actually. So we, and if you treat one without the other, or if you engage in more managerial behavior yourself in relation to that disinhibited behavior, you're in a losing battle, right? You have, mm -hmm. you have to deal with it as a package. It's both. It's, you know, the inhibition drives the disinhibition. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, we do a lot of work on unburdening shame also. Yeah. And, but uh, should we try to exterminate it? Oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, you don't have to exterminate anything. Uh, it's a very bad word to bring into uh, the internal <laughs> system. <laughs> That's the fear that parts have. The shame is just a burden. It's just a feeling state uh, um, and a belief, a set of beliefs. And parts let those go as soon as they feel lovable and loved, mm -hmm. which is what we're doing with the attachment. We're basically doing inner attachment work between the self, the client self, and the, and the part who's been injured. And the whole system that has become an injured system basically by trying to cope with that original injury. So, you know, mm -hmm. protectors need as much attachment uh, and love as the, as the exile does. Yeah. Marta, you have this wonderful title of one of your chapters in the Innovations um, 2013. Yeah, cannibalism. Yeah. Emotional cannibalism. Yeah. Shame in action. Yeah. What? It's a strong word. <laughs> yeah, it is a strong word. It is, indeed. Um, yeah, I intended that. Um, why, why, why so? Well, because that's what, that's what I see a lot. You know, I see people eating themselves up. I mean, after they get yeah. injured by somebody else, they, that we, after we, if we get injured, this is true of everybody, um, if it lands, if that injury lands as, as, and feels true of me and I don't get anyone around, have anyone around me protecting me and challenging that and saying, you know, bring me back mm -hmm. to some kind of place that's more self-infused. Um, particularly when I'm a child, then I am vulnerable to believing that's true of me. And as soon as I believe that's true of me, my internal system starts to eat me alive. That's what that's what shaming is. It's a kind of it's a it's a self attack. It know? is. You also have these. I don't know if it's these if these um, sentences yours is coined by you that is taking an injury and turning it into identity. Yeah, that's that's my that's a quote from me, right? And that's the essence of what of what is going on with shaming after trauma. If it goes inside, if it lands, you know. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, there are some people you can get like like say I'm walking down the street and someone makes fun of me for the hat I'm wearing, mm -hmm. and I like my hat. Mm -hmm. I might go, eh, you know, who cares, right? I'm not. I might. Mm -hmm. It might be a little shocking to me that someone's going to make fun of me in the street, but it's not going to it's not going to ruin my day if I feel confident about myself and my hat. Right. So there's shaming that, that where I'm kind of Teflon, it doesn't hit me mm -hmm. and there's shaming mm -hmm. where it gets through and it lands right in my heart, you know, and, it, mm -hmm. and it's like, oops, that person just saw something really true about me where I'm defective and I'm not good enough. My hat, my choice of hat means I'm a stupid person or whatever. You need an inner chamber. Yeah. And then, well, once that happens, once that arrow kind of lands in my heart, my entire internal system uh, starts panicking about it mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a fearful thing to be unacceptable in human systems. Mm -hmm. You don't want that. It's not, it's not okay. So your system galvanizes to manage this information that there's something unacceptable about you and your protectors who are often barely older than the part who got attacked um, start 
trying to manage it in the best way they know how. They either get into severe inhibition or the, and then they end up over here with some disinhibition because the systems become unbalanced by that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the first effort is to inhibit and hide this information, which is taken in as true. So it goes from an injury to an identity. Is the emotional cannibalism, is that usually self-reflective or do we do that to each other as well? Oh, well, then it goes back out, of course. We do, of yeah. course, we do it yeah. to each other as well. And that's, then that's why we have couple therapy and family therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right? There's no such thing as a person outside of systems. <laughs> Marta, you also have these um, interesting terms, historical shame and instrumental shame. Yeah. Could you help us with this? Yeah. Historical shame, what I mean by that is historical shame is we all get shamed. I mean, there's no such thing as getting through uh, childhood um, uh, or adulthood without being shamed. I mean, in childhood, parents have to inhibit you all day long. Don't put your fingers in the light socket. Don't jump off the cliff. Don't go up to that dog that's going to bite your face off, you know. So parents are constantly controlling their children to keep them alive. And in school, we are, and some, some cultures are much more shame-based in the ways that they do that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it gets passed down, of course, within cultures and families, the way of governing children um, and, and socializing them. So uh, peers also, and siblings can be terribly shaming. I mean, it's a, it's a way of getting power over somebody else, making someone else feel smaller in relation to mm -hmm. you. And there's all kinds of settings in which people want to do that to each other. And children do it to each other. And adults do it to children. So you can't get through childhood without being injured in various ways. But presumably, if you have a, a loving enough environment where you're getting the infusion of your fine, don't, don't worry about it. Mm, that real buffer. Mm you're going to develop some resilience around that. And, and you know, you, you'll definitely have some injuries. I mean, I don't know anybody who, who, who hasn't gone through an IFS training, for example, who says, you know, I don't have any exiles. I haven't met anybody who doesn't have any exiled parts, who hasn't taken some vulnerable part of themselves and put it in a cave or a dungeon. Um, of course. But, of course, there's, there's, there's a... A continuum of you know to very extreme trauma um but you know life is life is full of opportunities to be shamed yeah even from not only from parents but also from yeah. teachers educators and oh absolutely and and there are some you know cultures where it's particularly considered the right way to teach right you know i, I went to some schools when i was a kid that were Uh, and my parents were kind of desperately trying to get me and my siblings into a school where that wasn't happening. They were appalled, but it was hard to find from public schools to private schools. You know, my experience of childhood was a lot of shaming that my parents did not intend me to be subjected to. Yeah, and you differentiate between intentional and unintentional shaming. Right. And, and unintentional shaming is, you know, your kid pour some orange juice on the floor and goes down and, and licks it. And you go, oh, my God, stop licking the floor. You know, what are you doing? As opposed to, oh, honey, I forgot to tell you. It's not good for you to lick the floor because you could get sick. So, you know, let's just wipe the orange juice up. You know, your first reaction when you see your kid doing something dangerous is to respond, like, stop. Um, and, uh, and that's unintentional. I'm, I'm, but I am shaming my child to get a quick response. Mm -hmm. to, to stop them fast because it works you know uh, children are shocked by being shamed they, they, they're much more likely to respond quickly um, to shaming it's pretty endemic as you describe it it's everywhere yeah yeah yeah. yeah. it is so for you somehow shame is adaptive uh, or even innate shame the the the, the the capacity to feel shame and guilt and all these different emotions is innate. I mean, we're all wired to feel that, right? So we all have the capacity to feel shame. 
Um, and that warns us to stick with the group, you know, don't, you know, you know, when I'm in grade school, don't wear polka dot pants if nobody ever wears polka dot pants to school because I'll stand out like a sore thumb and everyone will make fun of me, right? So I, I try to cohere to the group norms um, as much as I can so that I'm going to be included mm -hmm. in the group. And shame is the shame cues us up to be conformist. And so there are good things about yeah. that and bad things about that. Right. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, so it's also adaptive. So it's adaptive in that way. It keeps the group functioning as a group, but for individuals, it's not so, it's not always so adaptive to be conformist, right? Because you may not conform to the group. You may be somebody who likes to wear polka dot pants and you don't get to or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Or you may wear them anyway and get kicked out of the group because you're not going to conform. Mm -hmm. And how so, Marta? Why does this happen so, so, so often that a bad thing happened to me and I turn it into I'm bad? Uh, because we're primed And I think this is we're also primed by temperament. This is my view. Okay. That there are some people who are much more resilient temperamentally. To, okay. Uh, and some mm -hmm. people who are much more sensitive mm -hmm. physically and temperamentally to the kind of interface, social interface with other people. So it has not only to do with the experience and the, the familiar setting or the perpetrators around. It also has to do with... Temperament and, I mean... And of course, legacy burdens. I mean, there's all kinds of factors that go into priming us. Our, the, the, the kind of cul culture of our family, the culture of our culture, and our temperament, and our personal experiences, which how much am I shamed? How traumatic is that shaming for me? I mean, I've had worked with people who came from what they, and I believe them, they said, I, you know, my parents are very well-meaning. I had a nice childhood. It was all fine. And when we get to their exiles, it's like, Someone looked at me sideways, you know, when I was two, and I never got over it, <laughs> you know. But I, but, but the, and then the other parts are going, what is wrong with this part, you know, for being so oversensitive? Mm -hmm. So they get, then they get beaten, that part gets beaten up inside for being sensitive mm -hmm. and being too traumatized by something that might not have bothered somebody else. Mm -hmm. Are you saying, Marta, that it's also temperament that? that differentiates between a victim that becomes a perpetrator versus a victim that just stays a victim? I, you know, I don't, I mean, my view is that um, all of us dish out and as we receive and we dish out both, right? Um, and it's much harder to notice what we dish out, right? The, um, in other words, shaming other people is harder to notice than that I've been shamed, the ways in which I shame other people. You know, it doesn't mean that someone who's been traumatized is going to turn around and become a perpetrator in the same way that they were traumatized. Many do not. Some do. You know, most people who become perpetrators have trauma histories. That's one of the things Gilligan writes about in his book, Violence. Um, but uh, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not necessary. But, but people who've been traumatized certainly have parts that beat up on them. And they'll have parts who you know, we'll take it out, uh, as we all do on partners, you know, um, in terms of anger and shaming and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, it's not easy to be, uh, it's not easy to be a walking system, you know. We're all walking systems and we have lots of different mm -hmm. uh, ways of being as we go through the world. And if we've been hurt, some of those ways are angry and protective. Yeah, makes sense. And uh, um, given your already long experience as a therapist, how, how is it for you to undo experientially this fiction, what you name this, you call this fiction? The fiction of, of shaming, right. Well, it, it's not, if that is what IFS is doing, in my view, is undoing the fiction of shaming. In other words, the attachment work between the self and parts, internally, the parts who are I think, of, I think of it as like we have little beehives in us, basically. And so the, the queen bee in each little beehive um, is the injured exile. And a, 
Say the, it again. You'd call a it beehive. Queen, queen bee. The, bee the, the exile is the queen bee in the middle of the hive. The queen, bee. queen bee. Oh. And and around the queen bee, this little queen bee, are all these worker bees who can sting you. You know. Oh, they sting. Oh, that's yes. That's a great analogy. Yeah, they make honey and they sting. I, oh gosh, what an image. <laughs> they work really hard, right? You know, to protect the queen. That's right. And we have, you know, these little, and then we have lots of parts who aren't involved with that, who who aren't pulled into the trauma, you know, hives. But the, we, around hurt parts, we have these little hives of, of bees. And, um, you know, we have to befriend the whole system to rescue the queen. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. Yes, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. it's, been, it's so fascinating to hear you speak. I'm wondering if you lead any IFS trainings or... Well, I did. I helped Dick get an appointment at Harvard Medical School a few years back, and he teaches at Cambridge Health Alliance also. Mm -hmm. And Nancy Soul also, who's a colleague of mine from there, has an appointment mm -hmm. at Harvard Medical School, and she mm -hmm. uh, and she and Dick She's and doing I, some research also. Yes. Yes, and we're we're working on maybe getting some research um, at Cambridge Health Alliance, and also I've been involved with some. Uh, some of the other research projects and nancy did a big research project yeah are you doing some research right now no none now um, not now mm -hmm. i'm actually writing uh two more manuals um like the one the trauma manual for pessy mm -hmm. one on with tony Herbine blank on on her uh, intimacy from the inside out her couple therapy that's ifs based and um, one with C. Sykes on IFS treatment of addictions. Oh, fantastic. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. That's really neat. Yeah, it would be great to have those two. Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The manuals. So, Marta, um, is it possible to do some IFS work without jumping in or stumbling into some shame? No, uh, not in my view. <laughs> no, and in fact, one of the things that I, I encourage uh, clinicians to do is not to be afraid of bringing it up. People are so relieved when you spot it. I mean, um, yes. and if you're comfortable with it, they'll be comfortable with it. Um, uh, they, they, they like to know, they like to know the difference between shame and guilt. They like to know that it's a part who's been hurt, who's carrying a burden um, and the whole thing becomes much more bearable as they learn to unblend from parts, basically, because it's the blending that causes people to be overwhelmed with feelings of shamefulness. So, you know, I just say this will, you know, this will feel better as we practice this. Let's practice unblending. <laughs> and regarding the future, Marta, um, you have been doing so much uh, editing and publishing and writing um, and practicing IFS. Uh, is there something you, you just want to keep doing these? Well, I have, I think about, I have, a, I have the two books that I'm doing now and I think I have a couple more wow. uh, on the runway. Uh, so I, so I want to do these books. Um, you will sit a lot. I will sit a lot. I get up and walk around and, you know, but um, yeah, um, that's my main goal right now is to get these books done and I love and I love teaching and, and I love my practice with clients. And so. we are very thankful to you because it's a gift that some someone like you is leading in this strong way all the good publishing that IFS is having. Yeah, now. I, I'm so grateful that I've been able to do it and had such great collabor collaborators. You know, I was a playwright, so so for me doing these dialogue pieces is just a great fun. Um, and, uh, and going into case studies is really um, fun for me to write. It's also fascinating on the on the receiving end. That makes <laughs> it glad. makes it real. Um, do you see or wish for any evolution of the model? Um, other than well, I see evolution all the time. I yeah. would say in two directions. One is that people are taking it out into so many different venues. Right, I and mean, people like you know Tony have, has developed it with a couple therapy, yeah. and mm -hmm. um, and so people are doing it in all these different settings. I I would I think uh, there are people who are doing it with groups. I'd love to see someone write a book 
I can't, I won't do it. Um, I'm not enough of an expert in any kind of group except DBT groups um, to write that book, but I would love to see somebody write a book on IFS, the various kinds of groups yeah, that, that exist and how IFS can be imported into that, those settings. So that would be great. Um, you know, it's being, Dick is really kind of bringing it, uh, the thinking a lot into the area of physical illness, as is uh, Nancy Soul is writing a, a manual for Pessy mm-hmm. on that topic. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, just for people, as people use it, they will make discoveries and people all over the world are using it. People will use it in different cultures and make discoveries about about their own cultures. And I just hope people write about this as well as make videos um, because there's nothing to my mind like the written word. I mean, I, it's fantastic that we live in an era where we, are. Where we can capture demos and stuff with videos. But, Wonderful. Um, but not everything, you're not going to be able to see all the intimate moments with clients with a, that, that people are getting in different cultures all over the world. Um, in video so i hope people write it's a wonderful moment for ifs and it's a privilege to witness this yeah growing and and the growing community yeah it's amazing yeah, yeah. It, it, i mean you can just see how interested people are the minute they hear and you know yeah. kind of get the concept and happy for finding finding ifs also yeah it's amazing and the, and it's so nice to people are so relieved not to be pathologized right to not be shamed in therapy <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. Well said. Exactly that. Yes. So, Marta, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, uh, our work and our lives. And um, is there any way that you would like listeners find you or find out more about your work? Well, you have those wonderful books i have a website so people can find me on the internet um i'm about to actually rehab that but it, it exists and uh and it will exist so yeah people can find me that way wonderful and for my books you know um i if, if anyone wants to email me about any yeah uh any thoughts or responses they have to my books i'd love to hear and many many congratulations for all the, the publishing work that we have been doing thank you it's a huge gift for our community impressive thank you it's a pleasure to meet you this was an ifs talks episode an audio series to deepen connections with the internal family systems model through conversations with lead trainers authors practitioners and users